morning. Grab your Bibles. Here we go. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to keep right on mowing through. Um, if you're part of our church, you already know the story here. This is uh, a little bit of time where I'm going to unpack the Word and walk us through uh, the text that we're going to be discussing tonight as a church. So this is not church. This is uh, just me preaching through a text, which is important. But we want to unpack it so that tonight we can come together and discuss it. So we'd love for you to come be part of that. We're in Tempe, Arizona. If you uh, hit us up online through social media, email, website, whatever you want, we can tell you exactly how to get where we are. We'd love for you to come hang out with us. We spend some time praying, spend some time hanging out, munching on some food, drinking coffee, all that good stuff, and then uh, also discussing this text right here so if you're moved by it if you've got thoughts questions or whatever come on man we want to be part want you to be part of of that discussion so we've been moving through a cross-shaped life that's been our kind of theme of second corinthians as we're working through it and we used a uh, verse from first corinthians though to kind of pin it which is in chapter 2 verse 2 it says for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified so today's title uh, of a cross-shaped life here is is knowing fear and being controlled by love. Knowing fear and being controlled by love. I'll pull that apart here in a moment. But isn't fear a bad thing? Isn't that isn't that a bad thing? Is it dangerous or unfair to be controlled by anything? Can you be intimate with fear, for instance, and also be driven by love at the same time? Yeah, I know. Got some pretty heavy words here. We're looking at some challenging words to put them together, but that, it's important because it's in the word that way. So we're going to pull it apart, and in the correct light here, you're going to see it's actually pretty freeing and empowering. So go to Second Corinthians chapter five. I'm going to read verse fourteen here. It says, "For the love of Christ controls us," Paul said, "because we've concluded this: that one has died for all; therefore, all have died." And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Lord, thank you for your word. It is amazing. Lord, thank you for your son and the sacrifice of the cross. Lord, thank you so much for grace. Um, Thank you for saving me and those of us who would confess you as our Savior, Lord. Thank you especially for the privilege it is to be able to open your word and share it with others. And I don't say that as a preacher. I say that as a disciple. We all have that challenge. And we all have the same Holy Spirit who loves his word, your word. Lord, you are awesome. And I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I probably shared this before, but uh, if you've ever been to the Creation Museum, it's an amazing place. You ought to plan a little trip over there, especially if you're a believer. It's the way uh, it explains a great many things. It's it's just really, it's well done. It's a good day uh, of discovery and learning if you go. It's pretty cool. But they have a planetarium there that for me is one of the most amazing things. I've been there a few times and that planetarium is always on the bucket list because, or the checklist I should say, because uh, they do a particular show where they start in the in the video above your head and you're in the parking lot basically and they begin to back up away from the parking lot into the sky and then into the atmosphere and then away from the earth and they just continue to back up and I won't go into it all but but it almost made me sick the first time not like motion sick but like overwhelmed sick it's this 
feeling of being so small as you consider the whole universe and become so humbled by it in like a second. The moment that it begins to, to, that you back away from the earth, you just, it's so humbling. Uh, according to scientists at ASU, a couple of facts about the universe, 1.3 million earths could fit into our sun. Think about that one for a minute. 1.3 million earths could be crammed into our sun if you crammed them all in there. And there are approximately 100 to 400 billion stars, like the sun, different sizes, in our galaxy. In just our galaxy. Between 100 and 400 billion in our galaxy. Uh, and beyond our galaxy, scientists obviously can't know for sure on any of this. That's why these are guesses, but they can get some pretty good estimates. Scientists estimate that there are as many stars as grains of the sand on the earth. So think about that in light of the fact that you could put 1.3 million earths into just ours. It, it blows me away. And then, if you're a believer in Jesus, you realize that in the vastness of all of that, having created everything, he looked down on one solar system, on one planet, to us. People that he created that would turn around and tell him to get lost. And still, he says, I love you. Still, he says, I love you. That kind of love is staggering, man. It's staggering. But then you consider he didn't just say it. He proved it. He proved it. That's the cross. And when you see that love, listen, it compels you to live your entire life, your every second for him humbly. You know what I'm saying? And this is exactly what's happening for Paul. Not that he's pondering the universe, that's not the case in this scenario, but he's considering the extreme love of Christ and is compelling him in his life and in his ministry and knowing humility, uh, he, he feels himself standing in awe in the presence of God. You'll see as we go into this. So considering God's word through Paul's words here, my prayer, man, for myself, for you, and I mean it, is that we all serve the Lord persuasively, but from a humble posture. From a humble posture, controlled by love, always remembering that grace came to us first, and that ought to keep us in awe that we also are dead without Christ. All right, so we're going to pull it apart in one statement, one statement with three parts, all right? Knowing fear produces humility controlled by love. Knowing fear produces humility controlled by love. Uh, so the first piece of it, knowing fear, verse 11 there, 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So I'll come back to the first part of that, but let's look at the word persuade, first of all. It's present active word. It's something Paul and his crew are intentionally and consistently doing, persuading. They are consistently and actively doing it. It means to convince or to cause someone to adopt a certain position, belief, or course of action. To cause someone to adopt a certain position, belief, or course of action. Is that wrong? Does that even twist you when I say it? Isn't that being pushy? Isn't that being offensive? Well, not if it's the truth. It's not wrong if it's the truth. For instance, 
Would you persuade a little girl who's standing on the balcony of an apartment building that's on fire and she's all by herself? Would you persuade her to jump when she thinks that it's safer for her to stay in the familiar surroundings of her house and her home? Certainly it's not safer for her to leap into the air and free fall into the hands of a stranger below, regardless of whether he's a fireman or not. But wouldn't you persuade her to do it? Why? Well, because the truth is it's burning. The truth is that's the safest move for her. You would seek to convince her. You would cause her to adopt a certain position, belief, or course of action. That's what you would do, of course. But being pushy, you know, with your faith is seen as wrong now. It's definitely bad in this world. I mean, this world... It sees that as, as horrible, and it's infected the church. It's now become something that we've adopted as a church. We don't want to offend. We don't want to press. And yes, you can definitely go too far. I know that. I've seen it happen. But we've gone too far the other way, and we paralyzed evangelism, completely paralyzed it. We're all about loving, loving and showing love and being loving, but we would never think of persuading, convincing. We would never do that in well, what causes Paul to persuade people? The word there, therefore, the very first word there is a key word. Paul uses it all the time. He links thoughts together. Paul's bringing home a point here. What's the point? Well, the last thing that he said was the judgment seat of Christ. They were just having discussion about standing before that. And therefore, they know fear. That's, what he, that's where he's linking it right together. Not the fear of the unknown, Paul's talking about here. It's the fear of the known. It's not the fear of death. It's the fear of after death. It's not the fear of the devil or hell. Listen to me. It's the fear of the Lord. He says it's in black and white. Now, maybe that's a foreign concept to you because we're in a Christian world that paints Jesus as a hippie. Just saying. Who just wants to hug it out. But Paul says he knows the fear of the Lord. Some say it's respect. It's not just respect. He says the fear of the Lord. And if that's so, well, what do we do with other verses in the New Testament, like 1 John four seventeen that says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have his confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Well, what's up? Well, first of all, let's clarify the terms here. Paul doesn't say that they're afraid of the Lord. That's not what he's saying. Or that they're afraid of the judgment of Christ. He's not saying that. Paul says they know they're intimate with the fear of the Lord. It's a specific thing. It's a full title. The fear of the Lord. It's common in the Old Testament. You go back and read it, you'll see that phrase come out a lot. Especially in, for instance, the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Things like that. Paul's referring to that Old Testament fear. And keep in mind, though, he's still in the New Testament saying he has it. So it's not an old school thing. It's still the thing. It's not respect. It's more like awe. 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 A-W-E. You know what I mean? A position of awe before the creator of all things. Knowing you will stand before him. Listen to me. Think about it for a minute. Knowing you will stand before him. Not afraid of it. Paul just said he longed to be with the Lord in verse 8. 
But it's the feeling of being small, of being tiny, of being finite in the presence of massive, overwhelming, eternal, even when you know this eternal one loves you. It's still heavy. Even if he's standing there with his arms open to you, it's overwhelming. Even as believers, if you're honest, it causes some level of fear. Not because we don't belong there. It's not that. But in our current sinful state, we wrestle with being in the presence of holiness. We wrestle just like Adam did when he sinned and he hid in the garden. Just like Peter did when he realized who Jesus was on the boat. And he said to, to the Lord, he said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. It's the, the same kind of idea. But unlike Adam, uh, our sins are now paid in full by the cross of Christ. They're paid entirely. It's covered. And the Holy Spirit now is within us, sealing us. Paul's been talking about that. But again, until we are fully without sin... The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It's a good thing because it keeps us desiring to be free from sin rather than embracing sin and being afraid of God or dismissing God altogether. That makes it a good thing. And Paul's saying we have that. We have that good, healthy fear of the Lord that is driving us. And knowing the fear of the Lord does something very powerful. It keeps us humble. Look where he goes. Knowing the fear, knowing fear produces humility. Look at the rest of verse 11. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Talking to these Corinthians. He says, we're not commending or recommending or introducing ourselves as worthy again, he's saying to you. Uh, but we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves or crazy, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So let's start up here. He says, what we are. Uh, what are they? Well, apostles, that's for one. He could be talking about them being appointed or ordained or called by God, the church planners, pastors, uh, all of those things. Whether others like the Corinthians or these people that are apparently giving Paul trouble among the Corinthians, whether they recognize it or not, that's who they are. That's what Paul's saying. That's who we are. Before God, God knows that's who we are. And the hope is that the Corinthians are convicted by the truth and recognize that as well. Even if they're tempted to believe something else about them, that Paul's saying that you should be able to know because God knows. And he's not boasting. He says, I'm giving you reason to argue for us. Not argue with the world for us. Not argue with random people. Argue specifically. He's saying to respond to someone here. Uh, so you may be answered, so that you may be able to answer those specific people. Who are they? Well, some refer to them as super apostles. You could call them maybe in our language celebrity pastors. My opinion. Um, but there are people that are attempting to gain credit and discredit Paul at the same time. That's who they are. Truth comes from the heart, Paul's saying. You can disguise it with what's on the outside. You can paint the picture however you want. But the heart always holds the truth. Always, at all times. What are your motives? I don't care what you look like on the outside. What are your motives? What are you? Who are you seeking to please? Who are you seeking to promote? And what are you willing to do to achieve your goals? Even if you have Jesus' name stamped on it, 
Even if you've got Jesus written on the outside, what is on the inside? It's like many people today who paint this picture of Christ. They get up and paint a big picture of Christ, but they really want themselves to be seen. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Or they preach Jesus' name, but they really hope you remember their name. You know what I'm talking about, man? Y'all know what I'm talking about? And humble, honest men are always a threat to that. Always a threat to that. And Paul claims their boasting is only in what God has done in their hearts. It's not about what you see on the outside with them. And later we'll get to it, but in Second Corinthians ten seventeen, Paul wrote, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul knows the fear of the Lord. And he can speak with a clear conscience here and a pure heart, regardless of outward appearances, in total humility. That's what he's saying. And these people apparently claim that Paul's crazy, uh, perhaps for risking his life, for facing constant suffering, for denying life's pleasures and whatnot. Surely God wants Paul to have his best life now, right? (laughs) Isn't that what God wants for everybody? Only a crazy person would say you got to die to yourself. Only a crazy person would say that. And Paul says they're, you know, they're crazy is something they're honoring God through. That's what he's saying. They're crazy is something they're honoring God through. Paul, Paul said they're not concerned about winning anybody's approval here or justifying their presentation of the gospel or why they suffer for it. If they're seen as crazy or not crazy, Either way, they proclaim the message, they persuade others to believe, and they leave the response to the work of God. It is for the sake of these who would believe. That's what he's saying. In a while, we still do that same thing today. We still do the same thing today. If we're honest, we put people in categories that we assume defines them or defines their credibility as a man or a woman of God. They're sane or insane, but we usually do it with money or something like that. For instance, if if they're suffering and they're poor, they can't truly claim to know the blessings of God. Now, you may not believe that to be true, but you think it sometimes. If you're honest, you do. You think of it. You think it. And if they're wealthy, they can't really be close to God. Surely they trust in their money. I know you've got to be honest. I'm telling you, we've all been there, I would believe. But like Paul, his crazy here, can, can we just say that if you have no money, it's because of God. And if you have money, it is to give to others. That would be taking the sane and replacing it with money in, in this text here. If you have no money, it's because of God. If you have money, it's to give to others. Either way, it's God for the sake of others. So knowing fear produces humility that's controlled by love. Look at verse 14. Excuse me. For the love of Christ controls us, controls us. Having just made the point that we all will stand before the judgment seat, and then following that with the fear of the Lord, Paul responds to all of this by saying that Christ's love controls us. Uh, three things to kind of consider here. First of all, let's take the word controls. It's a third person present active word. It is presently, consistently, actively happening to him or to them from outside. It, it, it means to seize or to hem in 
or to urge or force a person into action, to constrain or restrain someone or to motivate somebody. It's, it literally means what it's, it controls. Many people say, you know what, I, uh, well, I'm nobody's robot. You know, I'm not God's robot. God doesn't make us robots. I'm not God's robots. Well, well why, why not? Why not? Why is that something to be proud about? I'm not God's robot. Wouldn't you want to be? Don't you pray for that? God lead me, guide me, conform me to your image. Isn't that what you pray for? Paul says in not so many words that he is a robot of God's love, Christ's love. That's what he's saying right there. Controls him. And then it says love controls, number two. So it's not Christ's justice that controls. It's not Christ's righteousness that controls. It's not Christ's assignment of them as an apostle that controls. It's not Christ's authority over all things that controls. It is Paul, or excuse me, Paul identifies that it's the love of Christ specifically that controls. And then number three is the love of Christ. They're not just controlled by love in general. Listen, man, our world today is drunk with love. Drunk with love. Everything is love, and love should be accepted as everything. Everything everywhere. Paul specifically says Christ love. Not just rainbow crazy, uh, you know, unicorns and lights and glitter and what. No. Not even husband and wife love. He's saying Christ love. That's it. That's what it is. A love that is honest. A love that confronts. However, also a love that has compassion for the outcast. Compassion for the lowest of people and seeks them out. Even at the expense of reputation or notoriety or success. Even if it inflames gossip. That kind of love. I wonder how another believer might describe you as a Christian. I wonder this about myself frequently. What, what would they say? How about somebody who's not a believer? How would they describe you as a Christian? What would they say? What might they tell another lost person? Not you, but what might they tell another lost person about you, who you were, what you believe. Would they say the love of Christ controls her every move, man? You can tell that Christ is in her every thought. Would they say that? Would, would they say, you know, Christ, the love, the love of Christ leads his every step. The way Jesus loved, I see that in every step that they take. Uh, every word from her mouth is like it's coming right out of the mouth of God. Like it's Jesus, like the love of Jesus coming out of her. Would they say that? Not love as the world defines it, the love of Christ. What does that look like? What is the love of Christ? What, what does that look like? How, how does Christ show love? Well, you know this if you're a believer. If not, you know, whip open the Gospels and just start reading. You don't have to go far. Healing the sick, healing the dying, in fact, raising the dead. Showing compassion for the marginalized that are out there. Caring for the heart of sinners. A burden for, for sinners. Uh, touching the untouchable. Like lepers and others. Providing food to the hungry. Giving the hope of God's word and teaching it clearly and plainly to all who will listen. Sharing his life with his friends, his disciples. Defending the defenseless, we could go on and on, but above all else, the love of Christ is displayed in the fact that even as he is the perfect image of God, perfect, 
flawless, no sin, no crimes, inside and out, pure-hearted, pure outside. He voluntarily took upon himself the sins of the world. Yours, mine, Paul's, Corinth, the Corinthians, all of them, the sins of the world. And he faced a horrific death on a cross, horrific death on a cross, even for the sinners who nailed him to it. In the moment. And in that moment, at the worst moment of pain, he looks down at the people who are spitting at him and mocking at him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the love of Christ. That is why it so controlled Paul. It's grace. Paul saw himself as one who spat at Christ on the cross. He may actually have. And that's what he goes on to define in the last two verses here. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. Because we have concluded this, the love of Christ controls us. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If one died for all, what does that say about that one, first of all? If one was able to die for all, what does that tell you about that one? That was not a normal person, to say the least. But he says, all have died, past tense. It's already occurred. Died, period, past tense. Meaning they're dead already. That's what he says. If they all die, then they're as good as dead now. That's his point. If we all die, we're as good as dead now, in that sense. Or else there's no need uh, for him to die for those who are alive. If only some are dead, then why die for all? He, he, he just die for those because there's no reason to die for the ones that, that, that are sinless and alive. But those people don't exist. It says all. And for that reason, he also died. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, plain as day. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So if you... Uh, have sinned, you die. If you haven't sinned, good news, you won't die. But that person doesn't exist, okay? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all men have sinned. Or sin, it's in your nature. Look, we're not, but here's the point, we're not born into paradise where Adam lives before he sinned. We come into this world uh, of sin. We come into this world that, that is where Adam chose to be, not where Adam was placed. When Adam chose sin, sin entered the world. That's what we're born into. We're not born neutral and, hey man, hope for the best. Hope you don't mess up. We're born into death. We're born into a sinful place. Every one of us faces death from the moment we take our first breath and we know it. We all know it. Because, and the reason for that is Adam rejected paradise for his race. He rejected paradise and chose to build his own, even though it would include death. 
This is what happened. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking to believers. That's why he's saying you were, because now you've been saved. But he's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Verse 3 says, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature, it is your nature to be dead, like all of mankind. Paul points now, Paul's point in saying that in relation to this with Jesus dying for all is Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? That's the one he's talking about here who died for all. One commentary said humans did not select Christ to die for us. God did. Christ's submission to God's will was a supreme act of self-giving love. Ephesians 2 goes on in verse 4. Paul said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. This is what Paul could not get over. And for what reason, Paul goes, goes on in 2 Corinthians 5 and says two things. So that we no longer live for self and that we live for him. So that we no longer live for self and so that we live for him. My favorite verse also by, from Paul funnels right in that Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I died with him. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul notes in 2 Corinthians 5 there again, right, that last end of that last verse. Just a quick little note, but it's an important note. The last couple of words, and was raised. And was raised. He didn't just die for all. You're not living for a dead hero, honoring the memory of Jesus, you know, trying to keep keeping his memory alive by living like him. That's not what's happening. You live for a living Jesus. You live for a living Jesus who will also raise you. Will also raise you. So listen, as believers... Are we compelled? Listen to me. I want you to be honest. Are you? Are you? Are we? I'll say we. I'm in it too. Are we compelled? Are we controlled by the love of Christ? Does it control? Does that control us? That love of Christ? What does it look like in your life? If you say it does, then what does it look like? Tell me. I mean, say it. Write it down. Make a note. I, I love to know. Yeah, I'm not saying you got to email it to me or nothing. I'm just saying. I got, I'm thinking of it myself. What is it in my life? How do I answer that question? Am I controlled and compelled by the love of Christ? In what way? Are we persuading others because we know the fear of the Lord, or have we dismissed fear altogether? Hey, there's no fear, man. There's nothing to be afraid of. Look, Jesus is my homie now. Jesus is my homie now. We're, we're buds, man. Look, he understands when I sin. He knows. He paid for it. He understands I'm human. I sin. He's cool with me doing what I want when I can. He knows I'm going to share my faith when I can. Hey, he, he look, man, I don't got to be pushy with nobody. He knows all. Listen, 
Is that who you are? Is that where you are now? Is that what you become? As a believer, is that where you're at? Need to repent. Just telling you, I'm sure, I'm sure there's areas in there that I'm falling short too, man. We all do. We need to repent, man. We need to let go of that. We need to let go of that way you think we need to go back to the whole story. We need to flip back to the beginning and we need to read all of it and know the whole story of the God that we worship and let some of that fear of the Lord set in there and influence the way that we share the gospel. Find out what it looked like in the Old Testament. You know, Hebrews, everybody loves to quote in Hebrews where he says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Well, you know what? You're right. But before you claim that, you better know the yesterday God too. You better know him because he is the same. He is the same. And never forget his grace saved you too. Never forget his grace saved you too. Now look, maybe fear is not the word for you. Maybe it really is afraid. Maybe you are afraid of dying. Maybe you are afraid of what's next. Maybe when you think about the universe and how small you are and where it came from or what all is going on. Maybe it scares you. Maybe it keeps you up at night. You know, Maybe not. Maybe you choose to ignore it. Maybe you figure, hey, I'll think about it later. I'll worry about it another time. But the truth is, one has died for all and all will die. Whether you want to deal with that situation or not, you will deal with it. You will deal with it. So the question is, Do you know the one who died for all? Do you know the one who died? Do you understand the cross is a gift for you from God? It's an opportunity for you to find your debt paid, to find that your sins are are forgiven. Out of, listen to me, out of the entire universe, out of all of creation, the entire universe, the eternal God who created it all turned his focus into one galaxy, to one solar system, to one planet, to you. And said, I love you. The cross proves how much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, individuals, whoever, you maybe, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can you confess that today? Can you call on him today? Lord, I love you. You are amazing. Your word's awesome. Thank you for the privilege of preaching it. I pray if anybody today needs to let their life fall into your hands, God, that they would do that, that they would confess their sin, that they would accept the what Christ did on that cross was for them and that they would devote their life to becoming a disciple of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you be glorified in anybody who makes that decision today in Christ's name. Amen.